Welcome to episode 157 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, live in Halle. Courtney is back in Scotland this week, so I am joined for the meat of the show by Nick Lester, commentator extraordinaire and broadcaster, play-by-play, everything for the ATP media world feed and other sources. You've heard him, if you ever watch tennis, pretty much anywhere you've heard Nick Lester calling matches. So this will be a familiar voice for you, hopefully talking about the sport in a different way than you've heard it before. And it's cool to get one of these guys, uh, one of these World Feed guys on the show because they really do bring tennis to the masses and frame the way people understand the sport in a way that reaches probably more than anybody else. So Nick is one of the most influential people in the sport in that sense. So we're very happy to have him here to talk about all sorts of issues related to his job. Here's Nick. Thrilled to be joined by Nick Lester of the ATP World Feed and many other places you might have heard its voice piping into your into your living rooms, phones, tablets, whatever people watch you. People watch you on all sorts of things. You ever imagine the strange places where people are hearing your voice, Nick? Well, certainly on radio, we get some yeah. unique places. That's for sure. When we, you know, used to doing radio Roland Garros, and obviously do radio Wimbledon now. You know, it's incredible the people where people listen from. As you know, you know, you get people down mines in Australia and people. <laughs> uh, up in this space and people up everywhere. It's incredible. That's the power of tennis. Outer space listeners. Yeah, we had we actually had someone recently. I remember a couple of years ago at Roland Garros who was on some sort of space mission somewhere. Uh, I don't know how far up they were or whatever they were, but um, it's the power of tennis, as you know, Ben. It's a strong. It's a strong pull. That's and, pretty good. Uh, this sport encapsulates and grabs a lot of different people for different reasons, and uh, especially in this era where obviously we've got some some special people playing the game. So we've you know it's been. It's been a lot of fun the last 10 years. It's a long journey to, to sort of do what I did, but it's been fun. Let's go over that journey. So mm. what, what, what grabbed you about tennis? How did you get into this sport? First of all, you were a player. Yeah, sure. Not, not of any particular note, but um, I played short tennis, age 8, 9. Parents took me. I played soccer, as you guys would call it, in the UK for a long time. I played everything up to about 13, 14. I was very small, actually. I was only about... I grew very late. I matured very late. And from a tennis perspective, that meant as a junior, I didn't really achieve anything. Uh, but when I was started to play futures and grew sort of 19, 20 when I started to play pro, um, I had a bit more success. I trained hard. I was always extremely disciplined with my tennis um, in terms of, you know, I absolutely love the sport, as we all do, and that obviously helped me. Um, but it's, you know, it was fun, and, you know, I gained a few ATV points a few years ago. Again, nothing out of the ordinary, but it was it was a good journey. Did you, what, I guess, then got you think, did you always think you wanted to stay in tennis long term, or was it just something that sort of, yeah, well, you chanced upon getting into the, the talking side of the equation. Well, obviously, the natural route is to go the coaching route, which is what most people do. Um, I didn't go to university, so I didn't have a degree to fall back on in that regard, which which obviously left my options a little limited, so I got my coaching badges. Um, and I actually, it's a funny story, I actually started out in local radio back in Hertfordshire. We had a radio station called Heartbeat FM, which uh, probably only had about 10 listeners <laughs> at the time. And I was, uh, my mother actually asked... Um, if I could go in, because she knew the resident doctor there who did a doctor's feature. So I went in on the sports show on a Saturday. I was about 19 at the time, 20. Um, I literally started answering the phone. I was picking up the phone to find out the football scores, who was winning on the local regional scores. No one really cared, but it didn't really matter because it was fun. Yeah. And then about three weeks in, I was asked to go and cover uh, Stevenage Borough Football Club, which they're in the fifth tier of the English soccer division, which would be minor league to you yeah, guys yeah. in America. Sure. 
So I went with my phone, literally had my phone. The first ever, my live ever first on-air gig, I had a phone. I went to the football ground, didn't know who they were playing. I had a two-team sheet. And they said to me, right, we're going to come to you every 10 minutes for an update. So that was my first ever broadcasting gig. I literally had a phone. They would go over to Nick Lester, what's the score, what's happening? And I had to learn on the job. And I did that for three years. I ended up reporting on a number of different sports. I ended up hosting the sports show. It was all voluntary. There was no payment involved. It was a Saturday, um, so it was I was free on a Saturday because I was coaching a little bit during the day to make make ends meet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's where my broadcasting career started. So it was very raw. It was very sort of um, at the bottom end, but it was it's been a lot of fun. Skipping ahead to summer, I'm guessing. How did you get into tennis, play by play? First gig I ever had was Radio Wimbledon, which is probably about 2003. I met a guy called Steve Butterick, who was who was sort of looking after that. And he knew that I'd done some radio, and I met a chap called Nick Dye, who worked in golf, and he said, oh, you should contact Steve Butterick. So I did. He offered me a week's work, um, which I loved. Uh, absolutely fantastic team of people there. And, of course, as you know, in life in general, once you get your foot in the door somewhere, you're able just to become a bit more known. You're able to meet people, get contacts. And you know, that was probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, so it's been a, it's been a, a long road, Ben. How, how do you how do you call how different is it now that you have experience in both calling mm. tennis on the radio versus TV? Enormously, yeah. it's chalk. It's day and night. It's completely different skill. Completely yeah. different skill. And that's something that you know. I think it's better. I think as a broadcaster, it's a lot better having come from radio to go to TV than to go the other way around. Because obviously, if you haven't had the skill of being a play-by-play broadcaster, it's very hard to learn that if you've just done TV. Um, yeah, I've done radio color mm, commentary a few mm, times, and Courtney is our other host, done a lot more than me. Mm, and yeah, the amount of talking you have to do to describe a point and just the back and forth. Yeah, some 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 people will do more or less detail than others. as sure. they go back and forth, but it's exhausting, yeah. I think, and just trying to, trying to this fast paced, very visual mm. thing that you're looking at. It's a great TV sport, tennis. Yeah. Radio, yeah. it's a lot tougher. It is, but I love radio. I love. Yeah. I actually prefer, almost prefer radio, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. To, you know, the two. I think it certainly challenges you as a broadcaster a lot more than TV does. And there's That's for sure. That's there's for obviously sure. a different skill in, in TV, but um, it's energetic. It's pacey. It's fun. You have to bring something, you know, different to the table. There's no doubt about that. Um, and yeah, it's you know, it's it's exhausting to be honest. Radio commentary when you're yeah. when you're stuck in in centre court court one and you're having to do a four hour match non-stop play by play. You come out there pretty tired, but, yeah. it, but it's good. So when did you first start doing, uh, I guess, the world feed setup that you're in now? That's, so, what people, that's what most people probably know you from. Yeah, that. sure. So my first break came with Sky Sports, which was in about 2005, because I actually had a gig at the French Open as part of the Tennis Channel Mosaic team, and I met someone there who got me, uh, who I mentioned to me, and then Sky Sports had a week in the UK where they were very short, so they called me. It's probably about 05, I would say. And then once I was able to get my voice heard a little bit on Sky Sports, that's when the world feed came to me and said, look, we you know, heard you, would you like some work? So I've probably been working for ATV Media, as you would know them, who produced the world feed for probably about eight years now, um, yeah. alongside Jason, Robbie, and, and the guys that, you know, the sort of regular, core regular group. So, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful. And, uh, you know, we're all very passionate about the game. We all love learning about the game. We all, you know, the best part of, you know, being able to travel is to, to learn and constantly be able to provide any input that we can to the audience because obviously TV commentary, as you know, is completely different to radio commentary. You know, it's yeah. about... It's about being adds, adding something to the pictures that they don't tell you. So that's the skill that you know we have to try and bring to the party. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. What's, what's the day in the life of, of Nick Lester? At, when you, let's start with your, when you're on site. Sure. You're not always. You sometimes do remotely. But yeah. when, when you're on site, uh, let's say today in Hala. Sure. Uh, so well, I actually hit some balls this morning. Oh, so wow. that was nice. There I played go. tennis for an hour, which Congrats. is great. So I, on clay, okay. over, just over here. 
Okay. So I always try and bring my rackets because I always I still love playing. So that was that was nice. Um, you know what? So much of my I, I perceive my job then to be especially being on site is to be able to gather as much information from coaches and players as I can because that's the one thing that people at home certainly haven't got and the access yeah. they don't have. So, you know, this morning I had a long chat with Jez Green, which is fantastic about Zverev and, you know, all the sort of information I, I gather from him. Um, you know, obviously as a broadcaster, you have to have discretion as to what they tell you and as to what you can broadcast because you want to respect their, um, their respect, their, their, you know, their privacy as well. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, we're obviously learning and, and picking things up from them that we can then provide to the audience because that's imperative and that's absolutely critical for us to be able to provide something different. So... I had a long chat with Jez this morning about Alex, which was nice that we were just able to talk a little bit about on air and his development. Um, Research-wise, you know, without wishing to sort of sound too arrogant, I'm at a stage now, you know, where we see so much tennis all the time. I you know, know all the you players. You know the players. At a, yeah, at a 500 you know, level tournament, yeah, you're going to know everybody. Exactly. Yeah. So we know what they're doing, and, and therefore my job becomes a bit deeper than that, and that's why I tend to try and talk to players and, and coaches as much as I can to get stuff that I can't find out online and stats-wise. You know, stats are obviously very important for us. Your friend Jeff Sackman and his website, Tennis Abstract, is absolute oh, yeah. gold dust for us and I can tell you now that all commentators certainly my group that's the first place we go to tennisabstract.com it's absolutely outstanding for what he does so tip of the hat to Jeff certainly for, for his work um, and and yeah it's you know we obviously you know when we have for the 500s and the 1000s we have three commentators as you know so on a day like today we have four matches we will tend to do on this week we're doing two a pair for the first match and we rotate set by set thereafter so I guess it's, this is a tournament where you only have one TV court here, I believe, mm-hmm. this, this yeah. time. I think there were two last year here. The only 500 where we have two, I think, is Beijing. Where okay. We have two courts. So all the 500s predominantly have one TV court. So Washington has one. I thought Washington um, had two now. Or at least Tennis Channel has two. Maybe you guys don't Yeah, have Tennis Channel have two. We well, only have one. Have one. one. Okay, no, we yeah. only have one. So we would okay. only stick on the one court. So the majority of 500s only have one court, whereas the thousands, obviously, now it's gone the other way, and we have probably six. Yeah. So I guess um, when you're in the booth, mm. what are you when, and we're at a tournament? What are you looking at? Are you just looking at, uh, at the monitor, mostly to watch points? Or are you looking out on the? Depends where the commentary box is. Yeah. Um, here is great because we're very low and we're very central, so we look out onto the court. I always, to be honest, Ben, I always try and look out on the court because yeah. I feel like I'm wasting my time looking at a monitor. I might as well be back in London if I'm looking at a monitor. So yeah. I always try and look at the court. Rome is a bit of a nightmare in terms of the commentary box there because it's very high and you have to kind of look over. So it really depends on where the commentary box is. Most of them are pretty good, I must say, because the world feed obviously get looked after very well. Um, but but yeah, I, and I always try and look at the court to be honest. And then obviously when we're doing for thousands, we're often doing a lot of matches on B and C court, and we don't have a choice because we're obviously if there's a women's match on centre, we have to commentate off off tube as we call it off um, off TVs, which is a shame. Yeah, I guess um, what what are your when you're are commentating remote? That's one thing I've wondered about, and I can mm. tell the difference. Tennis Channel, I guess, is what I watch in the mm. US mostly, and you can tell the difference. I guess sometimes. And level of engagement almost mm, of the definitely. commentators when yeah. when you can tell when they're not there there's just a bit more I don't know if they don't quite feel the, the spirit mm. rhythm of the match or they can sometimes have a little bit less of an attention span mm. almost mm. you feel mm. like I guess do you notice do you catch yourself ever yeah. doing that when you are somewhere thousands of miles away Absolutely. watching on a monitor that it's hard that it's just tougher to, to sure. click into a match yeah you know what it's funny you say that because people often say to me do you ever get bored do you ever do you ever have a low point and I always say to them you know what. I'm at a live sporting event. I'm in the yeah. middle of a live sporting event, and that in itself provides me with a lot of energy. Yeah. So I think that, to answer your question directly, that's probably where, when you're commentating off tube, you can get a bit flat because yeah. you're not amongst the atmosphere. You're not amongst the buzzing Roman Foro Italico atmosphere, or even in Madrid where the atmosphere is not as good. But you're amongst an electric yeah. atmosphere. You're and, within and that, you, and you're not living. The, I mean, you're not in the same city as them. You're not in the same weather as them. Exactly. You're not in the same. You know, in like Rome, for Rome is such a 
a sensory overload sometimes in yeah. tournaments. It's crowded and mm. it's loud. It's, it can be can be hot. Can be definitely weather's all over the place, and mm. you sense and you can sort of empathize with the players. And you sure. feel like you're no. on the same level. Whereas if you're watching on TV, definitely, yeah, it can, yeah. it can feel much more sterile and much more detached. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, even as obviously as a writer, it's much yeah. easier writing off a match that you're there in person. Yeah, for. and I think as well, you'd be surprised some of the places you commentate in from when you're doing it off tube. You're sort of in a dark room. As you said, there's no atmosphere really. Yeah. It's describe, very hard. Just, describe that. That's what those places are like because I think that's something people never see. They're, they're basically. I've heard about it some for WTA side, like for performance. Yeah. But you're basically like in a booth. Yeah. There can be lots of different things for different yeah. companies going on. Yeah. Nearby booths and things like that. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, there's not a whole lot of difference in any of them. You know, literally, he's walking into a booth with two monitors. So Eurosport, for example, I've just done the French Open for them um, off from London. You're walking in a booth. It's a fairly dark room. It's not a whole lot of energy in there. It's two monitors. You've got an on-air, off-air button, and you've got a microphone. And it really is as basic as that. It's yeah. as primitive as that, and you are you are let go. Um, you obviously have a director in your ear, even for, actually for Eurosport, it's from Paris, so you have a director in our ear telling us what's coming next. Um, but for some of the events, the 250s, for example, I work for IMG from London, they even won't have a director in my ear. So mm. I'll literally just be picking up. I'll be guessing when breaks are coming. And you're doing commentary by yourself? No, no, um, no, for the 250s, co- no color commentator? Um, no, for the 250s, generally for IMG, when we're doing them, we have a color commentator. Um, I think probably WTA at the moment. It's going to change next year, I know. But WTA have are more of a one-ball commentary yeah. set up. You, and you, you've done that by yourself? Yeah. How yeah. is that? What is the challenge? That seems like it would be... Really, I remember I here, especially WTA, you mentioned yeah. Kevin Skinner used to do a yeah. lot of them by himself. Exactly. And just the sheer amount of just monologue you need to do to, not, yeah. to, to make it sound like you're not going crazy yeah. to carry on a conversation with yourself for three hours. Yeah. I would think that would be... It's as somebody, tough. I mean, just I don't ever... We don't I'll never do this podcast as a monologue. Sure. So it would yeah. be tough, I would think. No, it is tough. It is tough. Um, you know, I, I think... You know, my background is obviously a little bit different in that I, I sort of come at it from a... My, as a broadcaster, I come at it from a fairly decent broadcasting background, but also having played a little bit, I also kind of, so I, when I'm doing sol- solo commentary, I sort of try and mold the two, if you like. So I have the broadcaster bang, but also try and bring the kind of analysis side of things to the best of my ability. So, you know, when you're doing solo commentary, I think that's what you have to do. Um, and in, in a way, when you are on your own, you have to make the best of it, Ben. You know, you have to make the best of it because you're out there on your own. You just have to try and bring as much information as possible without without and, going mad and just feed off of the match more i guess Pick yeah more on let the match do the talking to the match yeah more. let yeah, the match yeah. do the talking which and is very often what yeah. we talk about you can't go off topic i guess the same no. way that you can with other people no no exactly you, you need to, to have a conversation with yourself is not easy i would agree what when you've been in the this game as long as you haven't been on mm. tour as mm. long as you have what sort of and you're such a ubiquitous mm. voice at this point mm. what sort of relationships or reactions do you get from players do you ever get feedback because well, I know a lot of the players t- sure. watch a lot of tennis. Well, they listen, all have ten- tennis yeah. TV subscriptions. Absolutely. They're all tuning in to yeah. their friends to see who they possible yeah. rivals. They're, I mean, they're watching. And sure. so no. as, as someone who does share space, do they, yeah. do they know who you are? Or do they attach the face they see in these hotel yeah. lobbies to the voice? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. they're all pretty, pretty aware of who we are. You know what Twitter's like. People follow you on sure. Twitter, so you get an idea of who's doing what. Um, yeah. But you're right. And I, and I think, you know, Something that I probably only realized in the last year to 18 months is the amount of players that do actually watch Tennis TV. You know, oh, yeah. I, for me, I didn't realize that until probably about a year, a year and a half ago. But Tennis TV has really grown a lot. Yeah. Uh, Within the tour, definitely. Too. Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think they've done it. And I think, you know, like all things, tablets, phones have changed that. Because people, as you just mentioned at the start, can, can watch on your tablets. So I think, you know, answering your question directly, I think, do I get a lot of feedback from players? Not a lot. No, I mean, I wouldn't say that players come up to and say, oh, I heard you the other day. But I think you're aware that people are always listening. Have you, had, have you had anything, and I've certainly had this, in, mm. whether it's Twitter or writing, 
where you it's, you get I don't know blowback is the word or some sort of mm. you know feedback or something. It makes you not necessarily change anything, but think twice before. Because I mean, you're in a position where sure. you have been, I'm, I get mm. you will have been in matches where you thought someone was you know. I don't know if it's some one of the more notorious players like Atomic yep. or something who mm-hmm. might be throwing in the tower or giving sure. less than best effort. Sure. And you have to be in a position where you have to mm. decide how critical you yeah. want to be on a live mic. Yeah. But and I think something sure. can be tough. Absolutely right. But I think our job as well, Ben, as well, you know, it's, obviously it depends on the role because you have a lead and a color commentator. So I think it depends what you're doing. But we have to be as honest as we need to be because our job is to be there to evaluate the tennis. That's what our role is. So we can't lie to people at home if we think what we're seeing is, you know, unacceptable or whatever you know we always have to be careful that we don't always know what's going on in the private lives of people so you know for us to stand criticize someone and there was an incident remember a couple of years ago i think with yankovic wasn't there and she talked about her grandmother dying on the day before or something so that's something that we again have to be very aware of because if players have got private issues that we don't know about that reflects their performance great example was uh dimage uh vadasco actually in beijing two years ago i was out there commentating one of his matches and uh, only came through social media about halfway through the first set or second set that his girlfriend's father had died in Beijing and we were commentating on the match and he was awful you know totally understandable his mind was elsewhere but when you look at that and you just look at it on a blank piece of paper you think well this is unacceptable this performance and then you realize after what's happened you find out that there was obviously a family problem so you know you have to be you have to trade carefully I think in that regard and understand when is the right time to go in hard yeah. and when is the right time not to. I guess in, in the sort of setup you have with the being World Seed, being ATP media, mm. do you feel like independent media or do you feel like there's some... I'm just wondering. No, no, It's a little bit of a yeah. middle ground. It's not sure. complete. You're, not, you're definitely sure. not working PR for the tournament, no. per se, but you are... We're employed by the tour. By the, no, we by are. The tour. You're absolutely yeah. right. We're so employed how, by the so tour. How, how much, how much yeah. oversight do you think they have and are they... Yeah, I think uh, the remit pushing, pushing to have things t- yeah. to see tennis and the players in a yeah. positive light. Definitely, I think yeah. the remit from them is definitely to keep it positive, yeah. which you can understand, as you say, we're part of their tour. Um, but as I say, I think at the same time we also have to be honest to ourselves as people and keep our integrity because as broadcasters, I think we would lose our respect if we didn't assess what we were seeing and it was fairly obvious to everyone at home. So we have to obviously have that. You know, we ha- our job is to is to make sure that we're honest with people um, and, 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 and say it as we see it to an extent, obviously within reason, as I've just mentioned, for some aspects that we will never know of. But, you know, I think ATB Media, obviously, you know, when, when they sit down with us and, and we get their evaluation, the job is to promote the tour. Mm-hmm. But that's not difficult sometimes for us because the tennis is so great, often at such a yeah. high level. that it's Genuine enthusiasm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think we all have that anyway because we all absolutely love the game. So yeah. that's, that's you know, we're all on the right foot anyway. Do you, I guess when you're at home watching a tennis broadcast, what are mm-hmm. the sort of things you like and don't like in a, in a broadcaster or a couple of commentator that you're hearing? I guess mm-hmm. how, how maybe this reflects in things hopefully. Mm-hmm. You like, what you do is what you like. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't do what you don't like. Mm-hmm. I guess what do you sort of think makes a good... Uh, broadcaster. I've always been for television a big fan of less is more Ben. That's yeah. always been my philosophy. It's always been I think the British philosophy more as well. I know in the American in the States there's a lot more more chatter and I think often actually one of the best bits of feedback we get from the American audience is we they actually quite like the, the European style of commentary because yeah. in many ways we let the tennis do the talking. We only you know so certainly yeah. speaking from a personal point of view, I always from a TV perspective try to add something only when I think it's a value. So there's no. I don't feel like I'm going to talk for the sake of talking, and I might. You get can th- go between points without saying anything. I might get three TV. or four points yeah. without saying anything. But you know what? The pitchers are there to tell their own story. So yeah. I don't need to tell you it's a double fault. It's a double fault. My, my my grandmother, who knows nothing about tennis, can tell you that. So that's no yeah. good. So you know, it's important from a TV perspective, I think, to be able to really add something 
Especially um, probably in a tense moment when the crowd might have more noise and you get more. Yeah. If the players shouting themselves or the players, you know, having an argument with the umpire, then you Definitely. shut up and let that audio come through. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, and I think, you know, one of the things about a lot of broadcasters is, without being disrespectful, quite a few have a big ego, and a lot of often, them, often they want to jump in and talk and, and be. This is about me. It's not about us. This is not about us. And this is not about Nick Lester. This, this tennis match. This is about whoever's playing on the court. All I'm there for is to provide something a little different to the audience at home. It's not. It's not about me. It's about them. They, they were, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So we have to make sure that, you know, we let tennis breathe, as I often say, and then come in when it's appropriate. I guess in terms of that, how? Because you, a lot of former players, especially I guess players who made it mm. higher in their respective countries, get at least do dip their toes in the commentary wire at some point. Mm. Uh, when you're working with somebody who's really inexperienced, or that I'm, I don't mm. know, I don't know a full list of who mm. you've worked with and not, but it's long. Who's, that list. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. it's long. You get shuffled. That's the thing. You, yeah. Even with my limited commentary. You get thrown in with anybody and just have to find a way to yeah. gel with them and mesh with them and find your own sort of chemistry. Sure. Um, I guess when you're looking at somebody who's new and a mm. former player, what are the things that you tell them to do or, or not do? Or, or what are some of the common, I don't know if they're rookie yeah. mistakes or things yeah, like yeah, that yeah. When, when you're when you're working with somebody pretty green? There's plenty. There's plenty. And it's happened a lot. I think, I think the best piece of advice I could ever give to anyone as an analyst is to, as I always say, tell me what the pictures don't. Yeah. Tell me what, that's the best lesson I ever had in tennis commentary, in, in sports commentary uh, on TV. You know, tell me what the pictures don't. don't. Don't tell me that was a bad back end. Everyone at home saw that was a bad back end. Tell or, me just, what, or not just say it was a back end winner. I've had people, you know, exactly. people would say, oh, and then she hit, that was a good cross court forehand winner. Yeah. It's like, I just saw that. Yeah. Exactly. I know. Exactly. So, so yeah. that's where, and that's a skill. That's yeah. a, and that is, and I'll tell you what, the one thing I've learned over the years is there are a heck of a lot of ex players who don't understand that. Which is, again, you know, you, you can see that because they haven't done a whole lot of it. But um, from my experience, there are a handful of ex-players, certainly that I've worked with, who really understand that. And I do think, Ben, that actually those that have had coaching experience often make the best analysts because yeah. they understand what you're looking for. They see it from a coaching point of view. So therefore, they're able to educate the audience on technique on you know shapes of shots of, yeah. of rackets grips things like that which are for me the nuts and bolts of tennis and they're, and they're used to watching attentively i mean if yeah. you have somebody like i know one of the most uh critically acclaimed tennis commentators in the u.s is darren cahill mm. uh, he's not doing as i guess he's working with simona how more mm. full-time now but he is sit, has a lifetime experience of sitting courtside on important matches yeah. and watching things analytically and critically and trying to pull something out of them definitely whereas you've never a lot of tennis players don't spend a lot of time some mm. much talk about tennis tv mm. lots never had to mm. actually sit through a whole match and absolutely. glean anything from it no yeah. you're absolutely right and i think you know um often for me the best coaches do make the best commentators i must say if they can transfer that skill of understanding the game to the broadcast booth and then to relay the message because that's important as well you know it's a skill in itself i think to be able to relay the information back you know they, they may often know what they're talking about but they can't they can't you know telegraph that message across to the audience which is often difficult in itself what, what, are, what are your some of your favorite kinds of matches or, or players to to commentate do you like i mean some i know there are some commentators who seem to whether they're just good at you know faking it but mm. seem to do fine and blowouts and can go off topic and tell stories about yep. players and just sort of you know mm. i remember like someone like uh mary carillo or pam shriver in the u.s i'm not sure how much you've heard mm. of either of them but they they both can like sort yeah. of, if it's a first round serena blowout can switch to other topics and yeah yeah riff but off each other and things yeah. like that when others are probably you know might get bored in that situation I yeah guess, what for you what, what kind of match or what kind of player action do you do you, do you find yourself doing what you think is your 
best work or your most enjoyable work? Well, I think it's a, it, to be honest, Ben. I think the answer to that is the, the easiest matches to commentate on are when you have a matchup of styles because yeah. you then have something contrasting. The narrative, of the, course, yeah. you have something contrasting. It's about one guy finding a way to beat another guy and overcome his style, as opposed to. Whereas, obviously, the difficulty that we have on the tour these days is with the greatest of respect to the players that we have and some wonderful players. There is a rather general kind of churn out of the same sorts of styles oh, yeah. you know as we know it's become a little bit uh, uh, great with regards to the way people play the sport not saying that's a bad thing but you know there isn't you know your Mikhail Lodra sort of figure who you know when I first started yeah. broadcasting probably was at the back end of his career it was brilliant to watch or Santoro you know? or, uh, exactly. or, uh, or um, yeah. yeah I'm trying to think who else would Someone like a Stepanek's a great example. Really good example. Against Maori at the French was a fantastic match. And And I guess guess on that same point, because you commentate all these Masters Mm. events and everything, when something happens, and I find it even as a writer, when you have to, when I write, you know, a Djokovic Murray Mm. match story for Mm. the sixth time this year and it's only June or whatever it is, that can be. At least the final, usually mm. at that yeah. point. So there's some stakes in that, but it can sure. feel a little bit sure. rinse repeat. Yeah. I mean, do you do you sense? Do you feel that as a commentator when yeah. you're? Because I mean, at the one hand, you know, golden era, but at the yeah. same time, there's a no, no, monotony can creep in. Absolutely, but then I think especially with know, those two because they play kind of similar styles, and <coughs> sure, similar matches. Sure, but I think then it becomes about going deeper into the numbers a little bit more. You know, once you once you know that's coming. You know, we have a really good resource with Hawkeye, which are invaluable to yeah. us. Hawkeye, I'm very are, jealous of that, by yeah. the way. <laughs> I mean, Hawkeye are absolutely what they do for us. They make us sound great often, very often, because the, the knowledge and information that they relay to us is second to none. You know, the information we get in the Masters 1000 in our ear from some of the guys at Pete Irwin, who does a fantastic job, um, they are outstanding. And they give us a lot of numbers that, that really do, you know, provide some valuable insight. Maybe it's not your place to opine mm. on this, but do you think that that should be more open to the public? You mentioned Jeff Sackman earlier. And yeah. Jeff, I know, would love access to mm. all of that Hawkeye data and a yeah. lot of other researchers and people like that. And yeah. it's all pretty much locked up and mm. they don't give it out to anybody more yeah. or less who wants to do their own sort of thing. And so when we yeah. get a glimpse, we're sort of at your... I don't want to say mercy, but mm. you know, at your yeah, whims, no, sure. if you want to show a, you know, you know, how far back mm. Nisha Corey's in the court when he hits his backhand in set sure. one versus set two, there's yeah. a tactical change, mm. that kind of stuff. Only you guys have the yeah, the key to that lockbox, yeah. and it's a huge treasure trove of stuff. No, in there. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I don't know the legalities of that or what the inside, inf- you know, whether they wish to make that more open. I know that, um, as you say, it's it's fairly a close shot with them. Um, yeah. I don't know the ins and outs of it, Ben, if I'm honest, as to why that that is, but. But I would agree. There's certainly a lot of information that um, that could educate a lot of people. Yeah. So the last things, I guess, just mm. what, what are your favorite parts of this uh, <laughs> of this gig? Traveling. It's a lot of travel. Yeah. How many, how many weeks? Do you, how many? Um, a year do you do? This year is about 19 weeks on the road. Okay. So yeah. Not too bad. Um, ben, I love learning about the game. That's simple. I really do. I love learning about the game. I love educating myself and therefore educating other people. I love learning about styles. I love learning about. Uh, how players achieve greatness, what their roots are, because one thing, as you know, it's great about tennis is that every single player's got a different story to tell. Exactly. And I think perhaps... And we're tour, both storytellers. We have that yeah, in common. Yeah, yeah and sure. I think the tour are probably a little bit guilty, both tours are a little bit guilty of not perhaps tapping into that enough yeah. because there's some incredible stories out there. More so almost on the women's side, I think, actually, in terms of the way they've come through the junior ranks and, and whatever else. Um, so I think they're the, the aspects of the, of the sport, I mean, sport I love. It's... You know, it's it's brought me a lot of joy. Uh, I've been in tennis now, and I'm 39, so I've been in 30 years. I've been in this sport, and um, every day's a pleasure. You, met, you mentioned women's story. I guess you call some of both. I mostly yeah, mo- I would say 90 percent men. Yeah, 90% are there are there differences men. between calling them? And I guess the one thing that I'll I'll ask specifically about is on-court coaching, which mm. I know was initially 
in you know invis- uh, instituted mm. as a television mm. gimmick or yeah. feature of sorts. It, yeah. When you're calling a match that has on-court coaching, mm. how much does that uh, does that does that inform your broadcast, or does it is it something that doesn't is not helpful? I mean, what do you think? How th- valuable is it to you as a broadcaster? I think my answer to that would be it depends on the coach. Yeah. It depends on what the coach is bringing to the player. Probably the language. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got to be honest. I think um, a lot of the time there isn't a whole lot of value brought brought by a coach. It's obviously difficult because you're in the heat of battle. There is a lot going on. It's quite intense. So I, I do sometimes sympathise a little bit with the coach. But you know, t- the big question for me is how much do we as an audience get out of that? Now, most probably a fair people listening at home say, oh, "I love it," and I understand that. I love seeing the coach come on court. But I think you know how much tactical and analytical insight is there from a coach to a player mid-match how much can there be some people might say because players don't want to overload and I think it's important to see also how much the player seems to be absorbing it mm. I mean, some players just stare into space and mm. don't look like they're paying any attention and other players might I always love when a player talks back and they actually have a conversation mm. and mm. a give and take and yeah. ideas and feedback and stuff mm. that's yeah, that's more useful. Yeah, I, think. I mean, I, I know the men have talked about it. Uh, it's been talked about on, on tour. I don't think it's going to happen on the men's tour. Um, personally, I'm, I'm a little old-fashioned. I do like it the way it is. I, I do no. think uh, that's what separates tennis. You know, people say, "Oh, all sports have coaches nowadays." Come on, sideline coaches. It's what tennis sports all about. Well, why should tennis go that route? Why should yeah. tennis just go I'm with okay, everyone I'm else? Okay, without it. Yeah, yeah the Grand Slams are doing fine without yeah, coaching. Yeah, exactly. Let's yeah. let's. You know, this is about finding a way. This is, you know, tennis is, is tactic, very tactical. It can often be, and you know, players have to find a way. Less, I guess. Last thing, do you have a favorite uh, surface or country? I love the European clay court season. I love the European. Why? Uh, venues. I love the venues. I love Rome. I love. I love. Apparently, not being there in Paris, but I love that. I love little Nice. There's something in Nice, you know, fantastic little venue down there. So much character to those events. But at the same time, I actually love Cincinnati and those tournaments. I love Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a tremendous. fantastic yeah. tournament. I've done a great job down there. I really have. That I mean, a wonderful event. You can't not like Indian Wells, can you? You'd have to be impossible not to like that. So there's very few bad stops on the tour, Ben. There really are. Most places are, are a joy to go to. Well, there are very few bad matches called by you, or bad calls by you, I should say, rather. <laughs> That's very Thank kind. Thank you very much, Nick. People can find you on Twitter at Nick Lester. Certainly can. Is that right? And on a TV near you all the time, <laughs> tennis TV everything thanks very much pleasure so thank you very much nick and thank you guys for listening to this episode of no challenges remaining i know we did not talk about the big news of last week which was the itf's two-year penalty from Rhea sharapova after her positive test for meldonium our planned guest for that fell through unfortunately so we will try to bring you an episode again a third episode on this topic once her appeal comes through since right now it is a bit one-sided with the itf having been prosecutor and judge in this case in this verdict so we'll come back to you i guess in july it seems like when the case will be adjudicated finally by the court of arbitration for sport in the meantime thank you guys for listening to ncr we'll be back to you next week with some very cool stuff from scotland and from wimbledon as the grass court season reaches its climax in the meantime while we wait for that you can follow along ncr all sorts of different ways on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. Leave us reviews on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes and any other podcasting app of your choice, which means you get new episodes automatically, which is cool. If you have questions, comments, thoughts for us, send us emails at nochallengesremaining at gmail.com and join that conversation on the show on our Facebook page in the episode thread there and by using hashtag NCR157 to discuss this episode with me and Nick. The executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Pancho Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley. 
We'll see you next time from England. Bye, guys.